1: And I'm excited to talk to one of our awesome volunteers today about his article entitled "Eye on the prize. You can find the article today by clicking in the show notes. I will mention this podcast is a little longer than our normal, but we think it's worth every minute. Now we'll jump right into the episode. Thanks so much for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Starting out strong. Tell me the story of your first regret.
0: So, and it's really the first regret that I remember. There's surely to be one that was earlier than that. But I really do. I remember this vividly, just growing up in the 80s and being obsessed with the Voltron cartoon. Saturday mornings was definitely a thing. And I would wake up, watch all of the cartoons. But Voltron was my favorite. And Voltron was incredible because it was these like five robot lions that would go out and fight the bad guys but then they would get they would form together as one and create Voltron they came out with this three foot tall metal Voltron toy that I really really wanted badly but you know I'm a kid I was like 10 years old I don't earn money through the community group I was in a talent show and it was my brother myself and a few of our friends and we won We won some money and I was going to go out and buy this Voltron toy with that money. And I remember that the other kids in the group were like, you know what? The talent show was to raise money for a capital project. They decided that they wanted to donate their winning back. I remember feeling so like sad and angry at the same time because I already had plans for this money. I think it was the way that I was raised. My family life was pretty dysfunctional. There was a lot of things that happened in the home that we didn't talk about, but we put on a good, good show, a good face for the outside world. It became really important to me what other people thought. So if other people were going to be donating this money, I didn't want to look bad. I knew that I had to donate this money. And my brother pulled me aside and he said, listen, I'm not going to donate my money. And I don't think you should donate yours because I know you've got plans for the money. I know you wanted this toy. And I just thought, man, he's going to look so bad not donating this (laughs) money. And it was like all of us, except for him, donated our money back and our parents were all proud. All of the adults were just singing our praises and that felt good. And then a week later, I went and stole my brother's money and I went and got my Voltron toy. Leading up to it, it was that rush of like, I'm gonna steal this, uh, get away with it and I'm gonna get my toy. It was already, you know, at that early age, This balance of wanting people to like me, but really wanting to get what I wanted to get, and also not really considering the consequences, because when the money was, when he noticed the money missing, and he noticed I got this new toy, it wasn't going to take long to figure out what happened, but that sticks with me, Candice, because that was when I was 10, and so it was two years before I had my first drink. Already, this sort of spiritual warfare that was going on inside of me. The selfishness that I really, I needed to look good, but I also needed to get what I wanted. There was no sense of discipline where if I wanted to do the right thing, that meant sacrifice. I had no concept of that.
1: You were just about win, win, win. Look good, feel good, and get the prize.
0: Absolutely. I can't remember this as vividly, but I'm sure that for a little bit, it did feel pretty good right up until he noticed the money missing.
1: (laughs) You were a born problem solver. Absolutely. I love the term that you use spiritual warfare because I can really see and just knowing your personality and how your mind works, I can see that very physical and theoretical tension in your body and brain between that appealing being held in high regard and the satisfying your wants and needs.
0: What it reminds me um, is just how desperate I was to feel better. The face of knowing what is right, that sense of needing to feel better was so powerful that I really, I didn't stand a chance. I had to feel better. You know, my, my, my home life, There was so much yelling in the house and there was, you know, physical abuse in the house. From an early age, I was already trying to figure out how do I transport myself mentally and emotionally out of where I am physically. But there was also this complete inability to see how I created some of that situation. The things that were happening in the house were worse. That's what I would look at. That's what I would point to. I would totally ignore or miss the fact that me stealing my brother's money caused calamity in the house as well. Right. Like he's feeling bad. He's angry towards me. That fight was caused by me, you know, and then when my parents catch wind that was caused by me, but I was willing to to look past all of that. Not really willing. I mean, I don't know how much I was a part, like intellectually, how much I was participating and really trying to see what was happening. I was truly just being driven by this desire to feel better. And that was the only thing that I really focused on.
1: There's so much in what you just said, but I can see that basic level, that self-preservation, that toy, whatever that bright, shiny thing was, you needed that Band-Aid to be able to put one foot in front of the other as a kid to feel okay. And that's that rock dropping in the lake. And then you weren't seeing, or as a 10 year old, maybe not able to discern all the ripples coming out from that, you know, caused by your actions. It's amazing how clearly you can look back and see what was happening.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why that moment is so vivid for me. It's mm-hmm. crystallized over time, like through recovery, because I just, it's the moment that, like, I can see more than any other that mirrors what alcohol did for me and what I was willing to do for alcohol. But it's incredible because now I'm a dad and my kids are 13 and 10. And I look at my 10 year old, what he's able to discern. And I don't think it was too much to ask me as a 10 year old to know what was right and what was wrong in that situation and to, to be able to see or predict some of those ripple effects. Cause I see my kids do it. For me, it was just a, a huge blind spot.
1: Blind spot. And you know, those skills that set you up to be a great attorney is that you were probably a very highly skilled justifier.
0: Yeah. I mean, we practiced that from a young, young age, right? And I think that a lot of us are drawn to the profession because of it. I mean, imagine how many situations we created, right? How many consequences we brought on ourselves by wanting to to feel a little better, having that internal justification and all of the skills that we used to then externally justify, you know, to convince others that either we were right or we weren't as wrong as you think we were. I mean, we were practicing those skills from from grade school.
1: It's so true. And when we have that itch inside that we don't really think it was right, if we can get that external justification, if we can get those other people around us to believe it, so much easier justifying it inside.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I don't really talk about this either in the article or when I share my story, but I do remember some of the ripple effects and sitting with my mom and guilt tripping her about how I needed this toy and, and all of the things that were happening in the house. And manipulation was certainly involved from a young age. I mean, we, we're drawn to these tools. And I don't know that every single person who becomes an alcoholic or an addict or who suffers with severe anxiety or depression... I don't know that trauma is present in all of our stories, but I can tell you that in most stories that I hear, there is some trauma there that really, it impacts the way we think, how desperate we are to find coping mechanisms.
1: Certainly. One of the lines that sticks out to me that makes me think about this in our CLEs, we give when we talk about our emotional resilience and how our brain works is that our brain's job is not to, to make us happy. It's to keep us alive. So it's going to do, it's going to manufacture whatever it has to do to make sure we survive. And that can trickle down into all these little things.
0: I taught myself from a very young age that survival by way of feeling better was found in external items. It was found outside of myself. When I was growing up, we were a religious family, at least in, in theory. We showed up every weekend and we preached real well mm-hmm. in practice, not so much. Um, <laughs> I was exposed to spirituality, East spirituality from a young age. And yet all of the ways that I trained myself were not that comfort comes from within, but that, it, that there's something outside of me that can make me feel better.
1: That is such a strong and common theme in what I hear. There's a million forms of external validation or comfort that you just keep trying to put in that hole, but either it doesn't occur or it just seems too insurmountable to create it within.
0: Right. It seems insufficient. That's what it seemed like for me. Like that's just insufficient. Mm-hmm. I can't see this, this higher power, right? I don't, particularly at a young age, the fact that I was already lying, dealing, obviously, those things had immediate results. Whereas you have this concept of a God, I have no connection to that. And so it just seemed insufficient. And I had no, no guarantee that it was going to work. I just, in desperation, I guess, you go to the things that you can see and feel, the things that seem to have sort of that instant gratification.
1: Yeah, this tangible result. Yeah. At this point, this was two years prior to ever having a drink. How did that come about two years later?
0: Beyond that story of the Voltron toy thing that I would go to for sort of external healing was I would lock myself in the room. I did at some point start getting an allowance and I would spend all my money on candy Look, I'd go to the gas station and spend 20 bucks on candy. I had this small TV in my room and I would lock myself in the room and I would just watch TV and eat candy instead of doing homework, instead of like doing chores, whatever. Like that, I would just sort of isolate. My parents were worried about that. At some point, they got me a bike and asked me to get out of the house. Just go do something. And they signed me up one summer to join our neighborhood pool. And I would just ride my bike to the pool. And I'd hang out there by myself until a group of guys just came over. And I can't remember if they started picking on me or if, if they were friendly from the start. Somehow we, we started to hang out together. These guys were older. They were smoking, already drinking. I remember one afternoon we had gone from the pool over to the back of a, of a neighborhood school. One of them had a six pack of beer. And that was the first time I drank. And Candace, I mean, we hear this all the time, but whatever that Voltron toy did and stealing the money did, whatever feeling I got from that, you know, stacking candy and just binge watching TV before streaming services were even a thing. Whatever feeling all of those things gave me were nothing compared to that first sip of alcohol. And then when the buzz set in, it it was magic. So I was hooked at that point. During the summers, I would wake up throw on some clothes and get on my bike. And I would ride around for hours until I would run into these kids or until late enough in the day or the morning for me to go and ring on their doorbell. And I would just hang out hoping that we were going to drink. That was the fountain of life.
1: Such a powerful motivator. I can envision you riding your bike for hours.
0: I had the most incredible metabolism. I was such a skinny. <laughs> I, I was getting all of this like accidental exercise. It was incredible.
1: You grabbed onto that feeling, and then was it the light switch that you just kept turned on for so many years, or how did that translate into how you were living your life throughout high school, college law school?
0: Yeah, I feel like it was sort of a dimmer switch, you know, and I just sort of turned the dial up a little bit. My memories of my early days of drinking, I wanted to drink all of the time, but I didn't need to drink. During the summers, that's when I would hang out with the neighborhood kids, and most weekends we would, we would be drinking, but then the school year would come, and it would be harder to hang out. This is before driver's licenses, and I didn't drink. And it was okay. I didn't have a desperation to drink like I would many years later. So I did fairly well in high school, but but I was already developing those habits of I'm going to do what feels good. Homework doesn't feel good. So I didn't always do homework. And if if I couldn't get out to hang out with the neighborhood kids, I would isolate my room and, and stack candy and TV, find something else.
1: You were the original Marie Kondo, the Japanese home organizer guru yeah. that you know, says, hold it. If it doesn't bring you joy, let it go. You That's did right. that with homework. You were the, you were I the originator.
0: It. I did it with anything that was going to have any kind of lasting you know, contribution to my life. I was like, yeah, no, I can leave it. I would find ways to cope and it was sufficient, but if alcohol was available, that was the preference. And then when I got to college, I'm on my own for the first time. And I had a fake ID. I always kept my dorm room fridge stocked with beer. When I moved off campus, there was always beer around. And I became a daily drinker out of preference, not so much necessity. And I say preference, not necessity, because there were still days when if I had something that I really had to get done, then I just wouldn't drink. I don't remember this mental obsession. Of having to drink. But it wasn't until I graduated and became a sports writer and was around this culture of drinking and culture of partying and this work lifestyle that was very conducive to drink. I was covering games and there was usually at night. And I didn't have to start my work day until three. So I could work from three to like 11 when I would file the last edition of my story and then go out to the bars until four, wake up at one. I had this lifestyle that was very conducive to drinking, and I think there was something in that that really taught me, first of all, I could drink, and drinking didn't get in the way of my work, and second of all, I started to feel like drink made me better, like I could do more if I drink. Alcohol became both this source of comfort, but then this, this source of you know, motivation to chase my ambitions.
1: It was your great motivator and you're, when properly motivated, going to achieve whatever that goal is.
0: I mean, and it was incredible. I think that there was something inside of me. I think it goes back to wanting to look good. I think that there was this, this motivation inside, this drive. In the big book of Alcoholics and Anonymous, they talk about this drive to conquer the world. And I think that was, that was already inside of me. It a very competitive field, and there weren't very many jobs that would pay you a good living wage. A lot of people told me to give up on it and to do something else, but I had this drive to succeed. I think that's me looking back on it. At the time, I think alcohol, with alcohol, I felt like I could take on and, and accomplish anything. So I did work my way up to ESPN and had a, a really good paying sports writing job. I credited that to alcohol, and what I learned from that was, no matter what gets you know thrown at me, if I have alcohol, I'll be able to handle it, even if the odds seem pretty great.
1: Sure, your elixir.
0: My elixir. I told you in the beginning, uh, cartoons were a big thing in my life, and there used to be this cartoon called the Gummy Bears. Oh yeah, I don't remember. Do you remember
1: the gummy bears? I can sing the theme song.
0: And I'm pretty sure that came after the candy. I think they were just trying to sell more candy. But the gummy bears were incredible because they were these little things and they just had this like really calm, peaceful life. But then they would drink this gummy juice and they would turn into superheroes and they could like bounce here and there and everywhere. Right. That was the theme song. And that's what alcohol was for me. It was my gummy juice.
1: Wow. That creates a whole new light for gummy bears for me. But it, it yeah. fits perfectly. You were at the pinnacle of what people want in your industry. You had the ESPN job. You had the lifestyle that you wanted. You had your powerful gummy juice. Why didn't you stay there?
0: I was able to discern. I needed everybody's approval. And I would keep adjusting until it felt like to me, that everyone around me approved of me as a person. And at the time, I was dating someone and and later engaged to someone who was studying to be a doctor. All of her friends were studying to become doctors or other kinds of professionals. And to her and really her parents, you know, sports writing wasn't a grown-up job. It wasn't a professional job. So there were a lot of arguments and a lot of crying on her part. I just remember sitting with this feeling of disapproval. It was really important to me to do whatever I could to gain that approval. And it was incredible because I remember coming out of college, nobody else that I was at the school paper with, or even in the J school with, nobody else was getting jobs at large dailies. And I got a job at a large daily. Among our sports cohort, nobody was at a, National leading sports media organization. And here I had gotten ESPN, but none of that mattered because she was crying. I went to her house one night. I had no plans of leaving sports writing, but I remember finding her sitting on her couch with her parents and she was crying. And when I walked in, her parents got up and left the room and she walked out to another room. And I just sat alone for about 10 minutes came up with this plan of how I was going to leave sports writing and how I was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. And I went out to the room that she was at and proposed this plan. And that was it. It might have been a little bit more than 10 minutes, but not much more. I just came up with this idea of how I was going to change the trajectory of my career. I really didn't consider anything else other than gaining approval in that moment. And so that's what I did. And I remember one other thing, Candice, it was hilarious because I was like, at the time she would complain about two things. And one was my job and the other was my drinking. And I was like, so this is what I'm going to do. That satisfied her. You know, she, she had stopped crying. She started to feel better. And I was like, listen, if I do this, you can't complain about my drinking anymore. You know, I'm (laughs) going to do this for you, but I'm going to keep drinking for me. And I made her I made her verbally agree to that before we went, we executed the plan.
1: You had an oral contract. That's right. A a binding oral contract. I was listening to that and hearing how, just how powerful approval is. And I think that's something a lot of alcoholics and, and people that are not alcoholics can identify with so much so that it can eclipse what we want, but we can also phrase it in a way that makes us seem very altruistic. I'm gonna change my trajectory and go to law school because I care about you so much, is the outward messaging. But knowing inside, I just don't like this uncomfortable feeling of people not approving me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I look back at it and for years and years and years, I harbored this intense resentment towards her and towards her parents. They had forced me to give up on my dream. That's as far as I could see. I drank over that for a long time and I drank at them. I treated them incredibly poorly, all of them. It's not until we get to recovery. Mine is a 12-step program. And it's not until I have this relationship with a higher power and I can honestly look back at my life and try to clean up the wreckage of the past It wasn't until all of that that I could look back and say, you know, the way that I got to and through law school was because her dad financed a lot of our life. He paid for her medical school. He had taken out loans for her medical school, which he gave to us to live in Chicago, which is where I attended law school. And then not only that, he paid off the loans and there was all of this financial assistance they were incredible people. However they could show up for us, they would. And because of that, I got a law degree. I was able to, to become a lawyer and, and live a lifestyle I never dreamed was possible. And in my mind, it's like, well, I decided I was going to do this for you. And I struggled my way through law school. And I did everything I needed to do to become a lawyer and to get a big firm job. But you look back on it and it's like, no, like that wasn't really a sacrifice. I mean, the law was not ultimately right for me, the practice of law, but it's an incredible and being able to think like a lawyer and using those legal skills is instrumental in everything I do today. And none of that would have been possible without them. It wasn't really a sacrifice. They, they did me a kindness in, in ways that I was just never able to see.
1: Well, there's that book, A New Pair of Glasses. And that is what it is when you're looking back from a place of recovery on the past that these things seemed to be true to us. And it's amazing these blinders and these filters we ha- can have on when we're in active addiction.
0: When you talk about the new pair of glasses, Candace, it's that immediately transports me to a particular barbershop where we used to get together and we would read different books, just a, a small group of us, me, me and you included. And we read that book. We read it was, um, Chuck C's talk, A New Pair of Glasses, and they had mm-hmm. transcribed it into a book. At that time, and I know we're skipping over my bottom with alcohol, suffice it to say it got really bad. And like alcohol was everything. Alcohol was what I needed in the morning to get up. It was what I needed throughout the day to continue. At night, I would go out to the bar instead of going home. And I would dodge my wife's calls because I needed to drink. And I definitely got to that place where I was living to drink. But my early goings in recovery were all very academic and knowledge-based. And I remember sitting in that barbershop and reading a new pair of glasses and intellectually trying to plan out how I was going to acquire this new vision on life, this new perspective. That Chuck C. talks about. Chuck C. says it a million times in that book. He didn't acquire that. It wasn't something he gained. He formed this relationship with the higher power. And through that relationship, he lost a lot of old ideas. So in my life, it would be losing the old idea that things outside of me are going to make me feel better. The old idea that my value in life is based on other people's approval. Or the old idea, something as simple as my former in-laws And my ex-wife forced me to go to law school. It's a matter of losing those old ideas, letting whatever higher power or spirituality is inside of me shine out and direct my life. That's how you acquire that, not academically. But when I first got into recovery, it was all academic. I spent five years studying the hell out of 12-step literature, self-help literature, just trying to study my way into a new way of life that I could never get.
1: Definitely ties into your titled article "Eye on the Prize." Is that recovery was going to come by you figuring it out intellectually, and right. you had an incredible drive to do that. <laughs> so, how did oh that look? How did those five years of recovery look when you were trying to do it from an academic perspective?
0: In my last year or years in Chicago, any normal person would look at that. Any same person would look at that and say, that's a bottom, you know? I mean, I wasn't really doing anything but drinking. I had a six month period of sobriety after my first son was born, which was incredible and a great bonding experience with my oldest. But outside of those six months, I mean, every day was drinking and that's what ruled and drove my day.
1: And if I can ask in the middle of that, in that period, how did your law career look?
0: So at that point, I was at a big firm as a sports and entertainment lawyer, which was as close as I could figure to something that I would enjoy in the practice of law. And yet it still meant, you know, essentially doing contracts and negotiation and occasionally litigation. And I didn't like any of those things. I didn't like, you know, how detail oriented the law was. I mean, I say that I didn't like it. That's what it felt like at the time. My lifestyle was not conducive to it. I would miss a lot of the details because I was drunk. (laughs) And I was terrible at, at it. Externally, I'm at a big law firm. Looks pretty good. I'm making a ton of money. Internally, I felt wrong for the law. I didn't like what I was doing. And I was frankly really bad at it. Towards the end. There was a semi-mutual split. I was looking for a way to go home. I was looking for the geographic cure because we didn't have family in Chicago. And now we, we had a kid with another kid on the way. And we thought, okay, if we move back home, that'll make things easier. But as bad as things looked in Chicago, they got so much worse when I moved home to North Carolina because now I was driving. You know, in Chicago, I took the L everywhere. I was on the train. And now I'm still trying to drink and get through my days, but I'm driving. And I got my first DWI, which I mean, it was just a matter of time, but it didn't take a lot of time after moving back home. And because of that first DWI, several things happened. One thing was I had one of those interlocked devices in my car. So now I've got to blow into it in order to start my car. And the second thing that happened was that AA, Got on my radar. And so I would finally find 12 step recovery. I got home from that first DWI and I just started Googling all of my thoughts, you know, and all <laughs> of my feelings. And the same websites came up every time, and it was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, well, I'm not Googling about drinking. I'm saying, <laughs> but apparently the internet thought that I was having a problem with alcohol. And so so I went to, to my first AA meeting, and it was incredible because I really didn't latch on to this concept of a higher power, but I immediately felt better because the people in the meetings drank the way I drank, and they felt the way I felt. And they were the ones who convinced me that all of the, the consequences in my life and all of the feelings of my life might actually be related to my drinking, which had never occurred to me before. Because alcohol is what made me feel better. And so I was never willing to look at that. That's when that academic journey with recovery began. And what that would look like after some time was I would get up in the morning. Morning. I would get up late in the morning. I would go to the liquor store. I would get a fifth of vodka and a couple of airplane bottles because that's what I would need to get through the day. I would drive straight from the liquor store to an AA meeting. I would sit through the AA meeting and try to absorb as much of the knowledge that was spewed at the meeting as possible. I would drive home, you know, open the bottle of vodka, open the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and start highlighting and underlining all of the things that I thought would eventually get me sober. My life looked like that for some time. The, the wrinkle in that plan, well, there were several, but <laughs> <laughs> the, first, the first that became apparent to me was that I was drinking so much that the next morning I wasn't able to start my car because of the interlock device. And so I started to have to troubleshoot that. For me, it's incredible, Candice, because it, I'm sure it occurred to me, but I never took seriously the thought of troubleshooting the actual part of starting drinking. For me, it was like, how do I troubleshoot all of the consequences of drinking? I went back to Google and I found this website that was called www.bloodalcoholcalculator.com. This website would allow me to put in my weight, put in how much I drink. And from that, it would calculate how much I could drink before a certain blood alcohol content. So what I would do is I'd put in my weight then I would put in whatever time it, in the evening it was and calculate, you know, okay, so it's 5 p.m. I'm going to want to start my car at 11 a.m. I'm going to drink this fifth of vodka. Can I drink all of that, start the car at 11 a.m.? Will I have a 0.04 blood alcohol content or lower by 11 a.m.? That's how I figured out that I could not drink the whole bottle of vodka. I can only drink 14 shots. And there's 17.5 shots in a bottle of vodka. That's when I realized, okay, I can only have 14 shots. So that's what I would try to do.
1: I've never heard of a more perfect example of the insanity of the disease that <laughs> you can be in the middle of those calculations and Googling and never to occur to you, this is unmanageable. This is perfectly manageable. There's a calculator for that.
0: I was managing it. I mean, I was (laughs) managing it and I would continue to manage it. Like as problems arose, I would just troubleshoot. When I was in these early AA meetings, they talked about the physical allergy. What that tells us is that once an alcoholic starts drinking, that alcoholic has no control over the amount that he or she is going to take, I would start drinking And 14 is my cutoff, but I would drink 14 and I couldn't stop. If I was not passed out, I could not stop. So I would drink more than the 14. And then lo and behold, I can't start my car in the morning. I troubleshoot, right? I manage. And so what I started to do was pour four shots out of the bottle, pour those down the sink. And so now I've got 13 and a half and I'm safe. And there was a few problems that arose from that. One was that that just didn't get me there, right? If I didn't black out, I was not happy at the end of the night. But I did figure out that like, if I waited long enough, and if I ate little enough, that those 13 and a half would cause me to pass out and I would be just fine. But there's another part of the physical aspect of the disease. And that is that it is progressive. The alcohol is damaging the very organs that help us to metabolize the alcohol. And over time, I metabolize the alcohol less effectively. Apparently, www.bloodalcoholcalculator.com has not accounted for this, that 14 is not going to be the number. It continues to tell me 14 is the number, and yet it wasn't. And so I would have the 13 and a half, but I would still be over a 0.04 in the morning. So I couldn't start my car. So that's when it became unmanageable. That's when one morning, thank God for the interlock device, because one morning I couldn't start the car. Part of the story that I haven't told yet is that my morning started with dropping the kids off at daycare. If I was under a 0.04 and I could start the car, I felt safe to to drop them off at daycare. And here I was one morning and I couldn't start the car and the kids are in the back seat. It gives you three shots at it before it, it locks the ignition. And the first one goes and my oldest is like, what's happening? And the second one, you know, I fail and my youngest is starting to ask more and I'm trying to redirect, trying to avoid the conversation. And then when it locks me out for good, all of us are just really quiet. And then I just hear his voice and he's like, is everything okay? That's the first time that it occurred to me that everything, no, was not okay. I had separated from my wife and I'd been drinking, so I believe. Under the radar, you know, keeping it, hiding it from everyone. And in that moment, I realized that I can't manage this situation any longer. I came clean. I was sat in the car and came clean. I called my ex. I called my mom. My mom took the kids to school. My ex let me stay at our house for a few days while we waited for a bed to open up in treatment. And I went to treatment. I wish that that was my last drink, it was not. But it was an important bottom because when I got to treatment, when LAP got on my radar.
1: And how did LAP get on your radar?
0: So I went to a treatment center that had a professionals program. We would be sort of in this general recovery cohort with everybody doing all of the same classes, except that for a a few hours of the day, we would be separated. And this group of about 10 professionals would do some other work. So it was me. I think there was a couple of other lawyers there, a dentist, a doctor. There was a priest with us. Through that professionals program, they would reach out to the assistance programs. They reached out to NC Lab. I got a call while still in treatment from Tawana Gardner. She told me about LAP. She sent me the contract. And in my mind, I was still, I thought I was bought into recovery, but, but I still wanted to figure out my own way. And I still wanted to manage how this whole process was going to go. So I told her that, that this sounded good, but that I wasn't willing to do everything that the contract said. And So I sent her back red lines to the standard <laughs> LAP contract. I have no idea what was going through her mind. I mean, she must have, in my mind, I thought this was negotiations. I think that she just sort of laughed. And she was like, this dude is going to get it eventually. I got out of treatment and I started doing lap. And so I started attending the weekly group meetings. I had check-ins and I started getting introduced to this recovery community that was 12-step based, but that was very specific for me. Like It was a group of people who understood what it was like to deal with whatever disease is ruling your life. But then also the specifics of what it's like to try to go through recovery as a lawyer. So just like it was for me, the first days of going into AA, when I really related to people who drank like me, I now had this community who could relate to not only, you know, many of them, how I drank, but also what it was like to do that and try to recover while being a lawyer and having the pressures of partners and and clients.
1: In this time in LAP, what is happening with your academic sobriety?
0: LAP was just fueling the academics because now I had access to, you would have the annual conference and you bring psychologists and therapists and addiction specialists in to talk about the neuroscience of addiction and trauma And all of this incredible academic learning, and it really, for me, it was still very much, okay, I've got to work the steps. I mean, that was the the revelation that came to me in treatment, but I still wanted to understand why the steps were going to work and what was happening in the brain. It was still very much self-propelled. I think I lasted about six months out of treatment before I succumb to a drink again. Because while I'm working the steps, it was really just checking boxes, doing the bare minimum to say I had worked a step without really thoroughly doing anything. I was still much more fascinated by the neuroscience and even the physiological science of like, I mean, I can still tell you what happens in the body as your digestive system breaks down and metabolizes alcohol. I was much more fascinated by those things. What was interesting is during that period, I was checking in. And so what the check-ins look like were, you know, you go to this this website to, and so you click this button and it tells you whether you have to go submit a urine sample for that day, just to test whether you've been drinking or not. And the, the purpose, I guess, is just accountability you know, as alcoholics, we do need a lot of accountability. But the lesson for me was, you know, accountability. If I still really want to drink, then I'm going to manage the situation. There's no amount of accountability that is going to convince me that alcohol is a bad idea. If I have not surrendered to my powerlessness, both with alcohol and with my ability to, to manage my own life, then there's no amount of accountability that's going to keep me for a drink and I started keeping track of when it would say no, you don't need to, to check in, and when it would say yes. Through that, I created this sort of predictive model of when I could drink, and then when I needed to stop a few days before this two- or three-day window of when it was going to flag me. And for a long time, Candice, that worked. And so I kept drinking, following this predictive model, on when, when I would have to you know, submit a urine sample. And it was just incredible how quickly I fell back into this process of managing my own life and managing really my own drinking. And what ultimately happened for me was I got a second DWI. It happened to be almost five years to the day of my first, the one that brought me into 12-step recovery to begin with. And I was sitting there thinking, man, I really want another drink. These two competing thoughts were in my head of like, you know, five years later, I'm I'm back in the same place. Five years later, the primary thought in my mind is I need another drink. And what I, I guess, surrendered to was that as long as I'm drinking, I'm never going to start this path towards any meaningful recovery. And if I don't start this path, we'll just look at what, these last five years have yielded. I had managed a lot of things, but there was nothing really good or productive that I could point to that had happened in those past five years of my life. There was truly nothing in these last five years of life that that I had to show for being a person on this earth. I had nothing to point to, to be proud of. It was almost like five years had just been wiped out of my life. And that was the surrender for me. That as long as I try to manage any of this, I'm just going to end up back in the same place with years of my life wiped out. I guess that was like a simple thought now, but it was a terribly frightening thought in that moment. It gave me just enough desperation that I was willing to finally listen to people and hear what they were telling me and to hear them say, listen, your brain is not a safe space for you. So you just can't think for yourself. And so what happened was my sponsor thought for me and most of his thinking was step related. So I just kept working on the steps. I was hitting a meeting every day. And through that, I found a group of people whose lives looked like my, I wanted my life to look. They would do other parts of thinking for me. If I was upset with work or if I was upset set with a relationship, they would think for me. And I just wouldn't trust my own brain. I would just do what they said and ultimately obviously that moment of desperation was indispensable having this group of people around me to think for me was indispensable but the real change in my life occurred in taking meaningful action so that meant that I worked the steps and I worked them in about two months and it meant that I prayed whether I believed it was going to work or not it meant that I didn't react when I thought people were doing wrong by me. It meant that I had to own a mistake if they told me that I had behaved poorly. And doing all of these things that didn't seem right to me or that, that I felt like I could justify away, doing them anyway, because they were going to, they were running my life. You know, after just two months of working the step, I did start to feel This relationship with a higher power. And over time, that higher power began to run my life. My brain wasn't such a dangerous place because I was thinking, what would my higher power want first? And I guess that is sort of that psychic change that comes about as a result of working the steps and, and doing the action. And I never really noticed, I can't tell you, it certainly wasn't after just two months. It was probably, you know, less than a year But it was just in taking the action.
1: That's so powerful for someone who is so, like a lot of alcoholics, intellectually driven to come to realize, I cannot outthink this disease. I cannot think my way into filling this hole, into that happiness. What it took for you to get to that place And to relinquish your thoughts is a a huge deal for any alcoholic, but especially an attorney, you know, that's our wheelhouse and how beautifully it showed up in your life.
0: And I think what's incredible for a lot of us as attorneys is we may suspect that, no, I can't outthink this disease, but I am so successful in outthinking the consequences Mm -hmm. I'm so successful in applying my intellect to manage short-term issues that develop because of my disease, that I have this illusion that maybe one day I will outthink this disease. We are taught to apply our brain to all situations. Our logic and intellect are tools of our trade. And so when I see it working on some of the consequences, I just have this this illusion, this delusion that it's going to eventually work on my disease. It is incredibly uncomfortable to set those tools of our trade down and to say, okay, you know what? This isn't working and I've got to let other people think for me. And eventually I've got to let my higher power think for me. And it's, it's just, it's incredibly uncomfortable. If I think back to where it all started for me, discomfort is not a place that I thrive right? Discomfort is the trigger for me to look outside of myself for something to feel better.
1: For the Voltron.
0: The Voltron, right? And I think that's the power of the, of the bottom. It takes different depths of bottom, I think, for all of us. But I'm just grateful that, that I survived long enough to find one that was sufficiently deep that I could move, I could finally move forward.
1: And how did that look in the context of LAP?
0: Well, what happened with my LAP journey is incredible because from the moment that I joined LAP, from the moment I started redlining the contract, LAP was something for me. It existed for me. And I was there to take whatever it had to offer. When recovery began in earnest for me, you know, when I finally Stop, you know, trying to manage on my own over a very short time. I realized that lap exists as a space where I can come and be of service. It's a unique place where all of those things that I related to. So immediately are things that allow others to relate to me. So now I get to show up in this community. I get to be useful. I can tell I went there five years of hell trying to use my brain to get out of that. And my story among lawyers is not unique. All of that hell, now, this source of of service, I had to endure that help, that hell, so that now I can use it to help others. And I think when that shift occurred, slowly, I just started to see what a gift lap is in my life. That's not to say that I don't get from lap. All of the things, you know, whether it's weekly meetings or or monthly lunches or annual conferences, all of the things, these are things that I can enjoy and walk away with something. But more than that, it is a place that I can consistently show up and be of service. And for me, you know, Candace, I talk about action being the real difference maker for me. I continue to need action. If I have a place where I can show up in service, well, service, is the pinnacle of action for me. The service is the one thing that fills that hole inside. So that when I have days when I can't consciously feel that contact with my higher power, I can feel the benefits of service and through that regain that connection with my higher power.
1: Well, Lap is so grateful to have your service and the. Many, many awesome things you do as a LAP volunteer. And one of the most important being being honest about your story and things that you might struggle with from time to time when when LAP volunteers and LAP clients show up in those support groups and things like that, being open and honest about what's going on in your head is a huge service to the other lawyers around you as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm so glad we got to share your awesome story.
0: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Candice. Thank you. I've been excited for this. I'm just grateful for everything that, that you guys do to make LAP run. grateful to anybody who's listening, who's involved with LAP or supports LAP in any way, because it really is for lawyers in any kind of 12-step recovery. It's indescribable the many ways that LAP uh, shows up for us. Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.